watched a lot of movie musicals as a kid. My favorite movie as a three-year-old was Camelot, starring Vanessa Redgrave and Franco Nero's impeccable jawline. I loved anything with Judy Garland in it. I even went through a phase where I asked people to call me Judy, which is the gayest thing about me, including the fact that my partner is named Margaret. I had copies of Grease and Annie on VHS, the latter taped from TV complete with commercials, and also a tape of Into the Woods. Now, this was long before the Disney-fied Meryl Streep version, and in fact, it was a recording of a stage play. It was part of PBS's American Playhouse series, and it was a tape performance of the original Broadway cast filmed in front of a live audience. The actors are wearing stage makeup, and you can hear laughter and applause. If you're watching a performance that was at one point live, but it's mediated through a screen and you can watch it again and again and it will never change, is that theater? Or is that something else? Back in April, after we'd finished all the puzzles, my housemates and I read a play aloud together. Is that theater? What about the Ratatouille musical that TikTok users are creating, one torchy ballad and choreographed finale at a time? What makes theater theater? I could see arguments being made for the following. It has to be live. There have to be actors or performers. There has to be an audience, and that audience must be physically present in the same space as those performers. And if all those are true, which is very much up for debate, then there isn't really a safe way for theater to exist during COVID. And yet... Sometimes... The limitation of a circumstance or a project is actually what really brings something to life. It's like sometimes the the key is in the limitation. From Brick in downtown Brooklyn, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is Glitter and Doom, a podcast about artists who are addressing the most pressing issues of our time. This season, we are focusing on reinvention. Today, how one company is reinventing theater for the COVID era. This is Abby and Michael. Hi, Mackenzie. Abigail Browdy and Michael Silverstone are 600 Highwaymen, a theater-making duo that creates work at, in their words, the intersection of theater, dance, contemporary performance, and civic encounter. They're also a real-life couple, and I reached them at their home in upstate New York. Kind of uh, close to Albany, actually. That's the squeaky toy of their Border Terrier mix that you hear in the background. Let's see, we first met in a theater history class, and we actually didn't start working together until many years after graduation. The first thing we did was we found a space in our neighborhood in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, where we could have access to a space anytime we want for free. We started working out of the basement of a church and spent the first five or six years of our collaboration sort of living out of this church and making three or four shows with a handful of people. And how would you describe those early shows? Was there a common theme or some sort of like unifying factor? I would say that all of those shows 
had this really live quality to them. And part of that had to do with working in a space that wasn't a theater. You know, there's that great thing that happens when, you, when you're away from a black box, when you're away from curtains, when you're away from programs and theatrical lighting. It gives you the opportunity to essentially invent all the theatrical gestures. A lot of these early pieces were really focused on not transporting an audience to another time and place and not asking actors to pretend that they are somewhere else and not asking the audience to lose themselves, but instead try to be in the here and now and be with the sort of sober reality of all of us together trying to make something happen. When you think of theater, often there's this idea of being transported somewhere through stagecraft. Oh my God, I'm on the barricades in 19th century Paris. Or wow, how did that cat learn how to tap dance? We lose ourselves in the lighting and the costumes and the helicopter landing on stage. And when the lights come up, we're amazed to still find ourselves in a regional theater in Dallas. But 600 Highwaymen asks audiences to remain present, whether in the basement of a church or an empty department store. One of their early pieces, Everyone Was Chanting Your Name, featured eight performers, and I'm calling them performers because they performed in this show, but it seems like most of them were not professional actors. They enacted a, quote, living portrait of themselves. There were no tap-dancing cats, just a tap-dancing Sarah Ishimura, a girl who appears to be about 10, wearing a pink t-shirt and pink floral leggings. Is that her costume, or are those her real clothes? Both? Does she tap dance in real life, or did she learn how to do it for the show? Is there a distinction between real life and the show? When you watch the trailer for Everyone Was Chanting Your Name, what you see is a white box with audience members in folding chairs sitting around the perimeter of the room. There's no set, no stage lighting, and no real delineation between performer and audience. There's one shot where a performer, a preteen boy in a Knicks jersey, approaches a woman in the audience who weirdly happens to be my friend Marissa. Hey, Marissa. And you can see him making a shape with his hands like he's holding a box and asking her to do the same. She does. At other points in the piece, performers ask audience members questions like, what are TVs for? And where do boats go in the nighttime? The first sentence of the New York Times review is, if the words audience participation make you queasy, then everyone was chanting your name probably isn't for you. My partner hates participatory theater, and the only way I can get her to go to the theater is if I'm like, it's absolutely not participatory. Nobody's going to make you do anything. Michael and I wince with the term participatory theater, which I know sounds ridiculous. Oh, why is that? Because I think that term has associations, I have the same associations as your partner does, that I'm going to be made a fool of, that I'm going to be asked to do things that I don't know how to do, that I'm going to be the butt of someone's joke, or that I'm going to be asked to like make something up or be creative on the spot in front of other people, and I'm going to be evaluated. And this is not that. We're not asking anyone to be anything other than themselves in the moment that they are. We're not asking people to do things that are beyond who they are in the present moment. While 600 Highwaymen may not consider their work participatory theater, it does seem to be built on some essential interaction between or co-witnessing by performers and audience. Their 2018 piece, The Fever, involved trust falls, strangers making eye contact with strangers, audience members carrying performers, like some sort of theatrical version of light as a feather, stiff as a board. How do you maintain that act of connection, that 
meaningful interaction with someone you don't know at a time when, please, do not interact with someone you don't know. It's not by sending out a link to a play that people can live stream from their couch while they doom scroll through Twitter. 600 highwaymen needed to reinvent their form of theater for the COVID era. And so they developed a work called A Thousand Ways. Yeah, let's maybe zoom out a little bit to talk about the larger work, because A Thousand Ways is sort of a a triptych with three distinct performances. But you've been working on the second part in advance of the pandemic. Is that right? Yeah, we were working on the second part. And we actually premiered the second part during the pandemic in Germany. Once COVID hit, we realized that we wouldn't be able to continue doing that project. We realized that it was going to be a really long time before we could do it. And so we very quickly figured out how to how to do a step before that project. So you basically had to reinvent uh, the structure of theater and create this prequel kind of like um, Star Wars. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is kind of like that. I mean, you know, there was a moment of sort of how are we going to embrace the limitation? What are the other possibilities? Is this going to be two people in an empty room on opposite sides of the room? What they came up with was a phone call. Like, that's the name of the piece. And it is also literally a phone call between two strangers, you and someone else. You both call a phone number at the appointed time and a recorded voice guides you through the next hour. It is a series of questions, Mm -hmm. but it is never a conversation. It is a series of instructions. It is uh, a series of invitations, but it is not a conversation where you're going to be left alone to be pleasant with somebody. So it's not a conversation, but you are speaking to someone you don't know and will never speak to again. It's thrilling, like chat roulette was before it became just dicks. We wanted to make a project that that responded to right now, which is people in isolation, people alone with themselves and their thoughts. And we wanted to arc from that moment back to togetherness, where two strangers connect over a shared phone line, not knowing each other's names, not knowing where they're calling from, not being able to see one another. I think one of our concerns around the pandemic is what is being lost, the ability to connect with a stranger, somebody that you don't know. Do you guys remember when it was like you were in middle school and like talking on the phone was the thing? Like you looked forward to talking on the phone? I remember coming home from school after I'd like hung out with my friends all day and then threading the phone from my parents' bedroom under the door to my room so I could then talk on the phone until dinner. And now I don't talk on the phone at all. In fact, it seems like almost burdensome. I have those very sp- those same memories too. I remember when I was a child, I didn't get a phone in my room, but my sister got a phone and we ran that long cord all the way from her room down the hallway. It must've been like 30 feet. I mean, I think the thing that's so beautiful about the phone is it's always been this thing that has allowed people to reach each other over a long distance. And in, in, our, in my view, it's so much better than Zoom um, because it's, um, you know, there's something really humble and analog and kind of poetic about the absence of visual information. I remember when I got the phone line in my room and and it was like totally, totally thrilling. Um, Felt like this, the world opened up all of a sudden somehow. But I also have that, the experience of being on the phone that I really love is that as a caller, my eyes are free to be where I am 
And all I have, to, I can be really present with you with the sound of your voice, but I can be looking in detail at a weird notch on the wall. And I can sort of be visually present in my space and kind of become closer to it while also hearing and responding to you. And I, I love the thing about the phone, which is that it allows actually a different kind of presence. I want to come back to the idea of participatory theater because I don't think a phone call is participatory theater, but not because it isn't participatory. It 100% is. It does not work if either person does not participate. But I'm not sure it's theater. I'm back to that original question. What is theater anyway? To be honest, there are times where I'm not totally sure about the phone call, whether it's theater or not. Um, and I sort of skitter between. Sometimes I feel very confident that it is and sometimes I don't. But I do think that there's that the act of witnessing is really present in this work. And and it's what I think sort of carries me through as a theatrical experience, the act of sort of seeing someone else, witnessing someone else, sort of paying mind to yourself, paying mind to them. Theater is always a performer and spectator or performers and spectators and they're trying to reach each other across the divide and I think that with the show we're working on we just we just tried to distill theatrical exercise to its rawest state which is two people trying to reach across this divide to see into each other hold one another and to take space with one another and I think that you can do that over the phone um, you can do that just with the sound of somebody's voice. You can listen to their voice and listen to how they're, how it cracks, and you can try to imagine where they come from. And in, and over the course of an hour, you've created, you've you've made space for this person. So, let me tell you about the person I made space for. At the appointed time, I called the phone number. It was a teleconferencing line, one of those services that we used to use before Zoom became ubiquitous. How did Zoom become ubiquitous? Has anybody else wondered that? Anyway, I entered my meeting ID and passcode as instructed, and then I listened to bouncy hold music while I waited for the other participant to join. So now there were three of us on the line, if you count the robotic voice assistant, which I do, because she was very much a part of this whole experience. It was a female voice, because voice assistants are always female, and she told us to just say hello to each other. We did, and that hello was electrifying, in a way. Because if you know what the general conceit of the experience is, you know that you're going to be speaking to a stranger, and your curiosity starts to build. Who will this person be? What country will they be calling from? Will they be old or young, male or female or non-binary? Will they be fun? Or will they be that jerk at the improv show who thinks he's so funny and tries to say something clever when really the performer is just asking for the name of a movie? So the stranger said hello, and all of a sudden I knew some things. It sounded like a male voice, although I don't think I ever learned this person's gender identity. I'm going to use he, him pronouns. He also spoke with a non-American accent, and since this performance of a phone call was being presented by the Singapore International Festival of Arts, I assumed he was from Singapore, which was confirmed later on. So the voice asked us to say hello, and then, as promised, it told us that this was not a conversation. And that felt very true. There were many occasions when I wanted to ask a follow-up question or respond to something he had said, but that was 
not the format. Instead, the robot voice would ask us questions. Sometimes yes or no questions like, do you have children? And sometimes more open-ended questions like asking us to describe someone we went to grade school with. There was also an interwoven guided meditation about being stranded in the desert, but for the most part, this was a highly structured icebreaker exercise between two strangers. I learned this person was born in Singapore and his parents were born in Malaysia. He's younger than I am. He works in marketing. This part I found out because the robot voice asked him to think of a piece of text he had memorized, and it ended up being the mission and vision statement for his company, which he seemed embarrassed about. He was a little embarrassed through the whole thing. Maybe not embarrassed, but sometimes shy. When the voice would ask us both to say something, he would never speak first. He's an introvert. He doesn't like to dance and feels insecure about the way he moves. He has dark brown eyes and dark brown hair, like me. He loves dogs. That one I know because he wouldn't always answer the yes or no questions super confidently. Like, when the voice asked if he could drive a car with a manual transmission, he said something like, not anymore. But when she asked if he knew how to train a dog, his answer was immediate and certain. Yes. Yes. He said it twice. And then later, when we had to talk about moments in our lives that we would carry with us forever, one of his was when his first dog died. So I had this hour-long conversation, not a conversation, uh, sorry, like a narrow window into this dog-loving, introverted, shy young man's life. And then towards the very end, the voice asked us to share one thing that we would remember about the other person. And that was easy for me because there was this one section of our non-conversation that really touched me. The voice asked about his family, his ancestors, and I forget the exact words he used, but he basically talked about their resilience. They were pepper farmers from Malaysia. The voice asked him to name one thing that these ancestors cared about, and he said, so sadly, money. And then it asked him one thing that he takes from them, that he inherited, and he said, my name, which I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into that, but that is low-hanging fruit. You don't reach for my name unless you don't have much else to say. And then the voice asked him what was one thing he had chosen not to take from them. And he said that he was not living his life with the same self-interested worldview. Those answers taken together and the way he said them gave me a real sense of this person and what was important to him and how he had decided to live his life. You might be wondering what he said about me, what he would remember about me from our conversation. I too am wondering that, because there was a phone glitch. For the most part, the line was very clear, but at this one crucial moment when I'm about to hear someone talk about me, which is obviously a very fun thing that we all enjoy, I couldn't understand what he said. He said that something about me was comforting and reassuring but I have no idea what. Was it my voice? That kind of makes sense from context clues because what else about me could he have found comforting and reassuring? Do I have a comforting and reassuring voice? Press one for yes, two for no. Para español, oprima tres. How can people participate? And mm, maybe not participate. How can people, how can people attend? 
um, upcoming performances. If you go to 600highwomen.org, you can see a list of upcoming performances and there'll be links to tickets. The show is also going to be running out of the public theater in December and January. The tickets are not yet on sale for that run, but those tickets will be free. Um, and they will go on sale or on quote unquote sale. The first week of December, tickets will be available for the, the run at the public. This morning, I was on a Zoom call, like I am pretty much every morning, and it occurred to me that while I wasn't performing, there was an element of performance. There's artifice and posturing. Like, you gotta pay attention to lighting, and if you're over 30, camera angle. I don't have a ring light yet, but I am not above it. If I'm pitching or presenting on a Zoom call, I try to look directly into the camera on my laptop so that my colleagues feel like I'm making eye contact. And all of these elements of performance, making sure that you can be seen and heard, they can make it harder to authentically connect with the people you're talking to. I think an argument can be made that the point of theater is connection between actors, between performer and audience, among audience members who are all part of the same experience. So if the point is connection and sets and costumes and blocking and lighting all make it more difficult to connect, then is 600 Highwaymen's a phone call actually theater distilled down to its kernel? Or is it just two people talking on the phone? Ultimately, I don't think I care because the 60 minutes I spent on the phone with a stranger were spontaneous and surprising and vulnerable and tender. And in 2020, I will take any sort of meaningful connection with another human that I can get. That's all for Glitter and Doom this week. We will see you next year. That's crazy. Thanks for listening, everyone.